Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 222. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can spend together. Thank you for those students who have um, made it their interest to come and join us during these Live Internet Studies week after week. I pray that you'll bless them and refresh them and give them insight into the topics that we're going to be talking about. Lord, continue to help me to recall the the uh, notes that i've studied this week and so that i can make a presentation that's um uh both informative as well as challenging at the same time um the topics that we uh interact with are uh difficult topics to say the least and so we rely on you holy spirit to unlock the passages to our understanding uh continue to raise us up and protect us during these last days and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory Bashim yeshua amen these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. And this first segment uh, for one hour is given over to the topic of eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. As you can look, see on your screen right now, I've got the updated topical um, schedule in front of you. You can see topics one through five already kind of grayed out and struck through, which shows that we are currently in topic six excursus antichrist per robert van campen and what i've done this week as i've been um reviewing more and more information that's relevant for us uh, for these eschatology end time studies is i've added a new topic called topic seven excursus the islamic antichrist per joel richardson if you've never ever heard of the concept of an islamic antichrist i promise you're in for a treat i believe that we will probably undertake that topic within the next two or three weeks we're almost done with uh, van campen's antichrist we'll take a good bite out of it tonight and, uh, and then perhaps maybe next week we'll finish up and then we'll be ready to move into um islamic antichrist with joel richardson so i hope you'll be able to continue to um Go along with the studies as I uh, present them here on this particular YouTube channel and this particular um, iTunes podcast. So without further ado, let's jump back into the um, uh, Antichrist per Van Campen and where we left off. I'll back up a, a paragraph and start reading there. Remember, we're talking about this idea of Antiochus Epiphanes is an historical um, ruler who lived 200 years before Yeshua and the first century disciples, so roughly you know 200 BC, and he has been put forth as a prominent Antichrist prototype or a prefigure of the Antichrist. So um, he's a, a figure that uh, committed some heinous deeds in and around Israel. To be sure, he's the one that's most notably known for, or remembered for the abomination of desolation for sacrificing the um uh you know the pig on the altar in in jerusalem and defiling the temple and uh forcing uh anti-jewish and anti um torah policies back in the day if you're even slightly familiar with the story of hanukkah and the background behind hanukkah and the maccabees then you are familiar with this man's name antiochus epiphany so let's continue our look at at uh, Antichrist seen through the lens of Antiochus Epiphanes as his forerunner. So I'll just start reading and then we'll move into the study. This is Van Campen. He says, that most blasphemous of all desecrations of the Jerusalem temple occurred in 168 BC when Antiochus ordered that swine, the most ceremonially unclean of all animals, be offered on the temple altar 
of burnt offerings. We're picking up our reading for where we left off last week, talking about the type and shadow of this man Antichrist um, in the form of Antiochus. Continuing, Van Campen says, and to make the sacrilege still worse, speaking of Antiochus, he insisted that those animals be offered to the pagan god Zeus. Because he had declared himself to be Theos Epiphanes, meaning the manifest God, in, in fact, Antiochus' name isn't really Antiochus Epiphanes. I think his real name was Antiochus, something that starts with an M off the top of my head, I can't remember, some uh, odd kind of Greek or Syrian sounding name. But he took the title Epiphanes unto himself um, because he genuinely believed that he was God manifest. And when we say God, we don't mean the one true God of Israel that we worship as Christians and Jews. We mean a God of his own understanding, i.e. Zeus incarnate. So, Theos Epiphanes, meaning the manifest God, and even more explicitly, Van Campen reminds us, Zeus Epiphanes, the manifestation of Zeus. Um, oddly enough, or humorously enough, because Antiochus turned out to be a false god, and because there were many in Israel of that day who weren't accepting his claims to be God, then they gave him a, um, a slanderous name. Instead of Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, um, which doesn't mean God manifest, but means something other, uh, something other humorously, um, kind of slanderously, um, kind of a, a, a slur on his name. I'll, I'll look that up a little later and show you in post-production, but... but um, Anyway, so we're talking about this man at Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy who spoiled the Hanukkah party, right? Um, he was himself a very wicked ruler. He he was really hell bent on wiping out uh, Israel and Judaism as religion. He, for some reason, really kind of unknown reasons, he had a very strong anti-Jewish, anti-Torah. Um, we today we would call it anti-Semitic, but anti. Um, uh, Israel bent to him. He had this really um, demonically inspired uh, notion that um, uh, Israel was a thorn in his side, and um, he sought, for whatever reason, to just wipe out the Jewish religion, not even peacefully, just uh, forcibly, you know, do away with them from the face of the earth. I mean, it really reminds me of Hitler's program. At some point in time, he just, he just felt that it was the right thing to do to rid the earth of the Jewish people as an ethnicity, right? So Antiochus himself also has these sentiments about him. He's not just a political leader who's seeking to make a conquest here and there and everywhere. You know, he's not he's not like another um Alexander the Great where he's just seeking to expand his own empire. That is part of his agenda. But the point I'm trying to bring up is that Antiochus Epiphanes really had an anti-Jewish, anti-Torah, today we would call it anti-Semitic, um, quality about him. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because the future Antichrist that we're looking at through the lens of Antiochus, this future man, Antichrist, seems to have the similar agenda. He's not just going to be this political figure who's going to um, create a false peace with Israel in the Middle East only to deceive her halfway through this covenant that he makes with her. He's not going to just be this guy who's going to seek to dominate the Middle East in his day and the, eventually the entire world. But he's also going to have this uh, hell-bent um, uh, hatred, demonically inspired hatred against the true God of Jews and of Christians against the religion of Judaism and ultimately Christianity, and thus 
to that extent, we as Jews and Christians really need to pay attention to not just the forerunner that we're looking at, but also to ultimately the Antichrist himself. We need to be very, very careful and wary of this man when he has the scene. But Van Kampen continues, speaking of Antichrist, he was actually demanding worship of himself in place of Almighty God. And we're going to eventually realize that this is what um, Paul picks up on when he talks about uh, Antichrist sitting in the uh, temple uh declaring himself to be God, opposing every God or object of worship that is called God in, back in that day, or uh, in that day when the time comes. Let's keep reading Van Kampen. Continuing our parallel of Antichrist to the historical Antiochus, which is basically what this entire excursus is about. There's a, a very strong parallel, for good reason, between Antichrist of the future and the historical Antiochus Epiphanes himself. And the, the strong connector and parallel that I want to keep bringing you back to, I mean, because after all, we could look at other biblical figures who are a type of those who were part of us but then left us, Antichrist figures like that. I'm not saying that the Antichrist has to have come from us. Um, there are ways to um, work around that verse in First John where it talks about He's an Antichrist because he left us. He was part of us, but then he's, he left us, and that's how we know he's Antichrist. But um, relevant to our study, or germane to our study, is that this Antiochus figure, and as well as Antichrist, who's going to come, this um, historical figure is pronounced by Yeshua as someone that already hit the scene and that Israel should be aware of. You remember, it was Yeshua himself that said in Matthew 24, I believe it's verse 15, I'll flash it on the screen and post, where he said, when you see the um, abomination of desolation uh, spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place that the reader understand, I'm paraphrasing, then it was Yeshua himself who clued us into the importance of studying Antiochus Epiphanes with a view towards the coming tribulation period, the coming um, hardship, the, 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 the Jacob's trouble, the time period on earth known as the tribulation, um, which had a foreshadow itself in 70 AD and, one, and the 130s with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but which, according to the book of Revelation, as I understand it, in the futurist model, will have its final fulfillment in these last days that we're uh, rapidly moving towards. So, we're looking at this parallel between these two men, Antiochus, Epiphanes, and Antichrist. And what we find is that Daniel predicts, as I pick up Van Campen's reading, that in the end times, Antichrist will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Daniel 11, 42. So, we see he's going to have his... Um, his uh, way in um, interrupting daily life in the Middle East as he goes about his business to seek to not only um, form a ten-nation coalition known as the Eighth and Final Beast Empire, but ultimately to overthrow three kind of um, power base type of nations so that he can establish his own power base in place of those three. So Daniel talks about him um, uprooting three horns. Remember Daniel's prophecies talk about this beast with um, ten horns, and the book of Revelation connects those dots by saying that there was this beast that John saw that had seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns, or seven crowns, I'm sorry. Um, or maybe it's ten crowns. I, I, I sometimes swap out the vision of the dragon with the vision of the beast, but basics like, like father, like son, because the dragon is Satan and the beast is Antichrist. And the point being that Antichrist is going to basically establish his leadership in the Middle East, but 
we who live in the West, like America and, and places like that, we're going to feel the impact of his uh, one world um, uh, dominant, dominant um, ruling because eventually his policies, like we read in the book of Revelation, are going to extend universally. So, what's my point? They're going to start out probably locally within the Middle East, Israel, as he um, sets up his um, kind of headquarters in Jerusalem, I believe. Uh, and then he'll probably have another maybe military headquarters somewhere, maybe a little bit north of Israel. Um, how far north? I'm not sure. You know, uh, uh, could be Iraq, uh, Iraq could be um, Syria, could be as far north as Russia, etc. But um He's going to have his headquarters, both his, probably his, what we might say, his dual purpose, um, religious headquarters in Jerusalem, I believe, and then his military headquarters, probably somewhere a little bit more defensible than, than uh, Israel. But this, um, this domination in the, in the Middle East there, this, this established um, ruling in the Middle East, which is going to be largely um, probably Arab, Muslim-controlled, um, and things like that, but it's it's it has to overflow out into the rest of the world. As he it, when we start approaching the midpoint of the week, he's going to get in his mind that he needs to um, uh, have total rule and total allegiance, not just by those people in the Middle East, but by everyone in the world. As he declares himself to be God and um, uh, opposes everything that is so-called God and any true God. Obviously, he's going to be opposing the true God of Israel and, and of Christianity, as well as any other um, um, religions in the world. And so, he's going to begin a, a tribulation period that's going to kick off a time period that has never been seen the likes of in the world yet. So, Van Campen continues along those themes. Speaking of Antichrist, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, right? Daniel 11.25. I'm sorry, Daniel 11.45. Sounds like the location is exactly what I was just talking about right there in the Middle East. Almost sounds like Armageddon, Armageddon-type location when we say between the seas, talking about, for Israel, the Mediterranean Sea on the west and the um, Dead Sea, probably on, on you know just on the east uh, near the, um, the on the east of the Jordan, or or just south of the Jordan. Um, so those would be the seas there. Uh, uh, so between the seas and the beautiful Holy Mountain, that's kind of right smack dab where about um, Har Megiddo, kind of north of Israel, about what 15, 20 miles north of Israel right now. Um, Van Camping continues, speaking of um, Antichrist and quoting from Daniel, and then and that then there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, Daniel 12, verse 1. So we're seeing, even if you take the perspective that you're going to be gone, if you're a Christian you're watching this YouTube video, listening to this iTunes podcast, and you've been taught from your pastor that you are going to be pre-tribulationally raptured away from planet Earth before any of this bad stuff hits the fan, right? You're going to be gone. You're going to be uh, whisk whisked away. Well, then that might be fine and well for you as a Christian. But what about your friends and family and loved ones who are still left here who haven't made a decision for Yeshua before that time hits? According to even the pre-tribbers, who think they're going to be gone before any of this happens, even according to their models of rapture and tribulation, those who haven't named the name of Yeshua when the time of the rapture comes, they're still going to be here left to face the brunt of Antichrist's wrath, the wrath of Satan that's poured out 
on earth during that last 70th week of Daniel. So you owe it to yourself, even if you're a pre-tribber, to take seriously this idea of the Antichrist and his last seven-year um, stint here on earth where he's going to, at first, for the first three and a half years, he's going to look like a man of peace, right? Remember, he's the white horse rider in um, Revelation of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? You have the white horse, then you have the, um, believe in this order, the white horse, then the black horse, then the red horse, then the pale horse. I think that's the order, right? I'll flash a little graphic on the screen. I always get that wrong for some reason, but I think it's black. I'm sorry, it's white, then black, then red, then pale. I might have the black and the red swapped out. But he's that first rider, right? The first of the four horsemen kicking off the, the 70th week with, with his um, false peace, his fake peace, his, um, his uh, deceptive peace agreement that he makes with uh, major players there in the Middle East. So he's going to look like he's a man of peace, but as the week starts to play itself out, when we get to the midpoint of the week, he's going to take off the mask and reveal himself to be Satan incarnate. And then, of course, he's going to wrap up the siege of Jerusalem and um, the occupation of, of, the, of Jerusalem and begin his one world um, tribulational rampage of um, forcing uh, you know, the mark of the beast and the, the worship of, of himself as very God. So here are these pre-tribbers who are supposedly in heaven watching all this happen because they got raptured away. But what about all your loved ones who are still on planet Earth who didn't accept Jesus before the rapture took place? Don't you owe it to yourself to warn them about what's going to take place if they're still here on planet Earth when that happens? Of course, those of us who are mid-tribbers or pre-rathers or post-tribbers who already are trying to prepare ourselves for this time, right? We believe that we're going to be around during a lot of what's going to start taking place, although God will still supernaturally protect us somehow, pre-rath or Goshen principle, either way. But we still are going to have to deal with a lot of what Antichrist is going to be shoveling out um, before uh, um, God's supernatural protection kicks in. Remember, Antichrist is going to be uh, persecuting saints. So let's pick up um, these readings. That's the theme that I'm kind of leading into now. Van Campen says, in the middle of the 70th week, he, the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one that is Antichrist, right? Remember, this is one of his nicknames, the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed by God himself, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's Daniel 9, 27b. And we've looked at this in the past. This idea that for the first half of the week, the three hundred, the the um uh, three and a half years, everything will be somewhat peaceful as far as politically in the Middle East. Now, of course, there's going to be the what Yeshua referred to as the um, beginnings of birth pangs, right? There's all kinds of um, there's still wars and rumors of war that are going to be taking place during those days. There will still be um, famine and um, uh, certain economic upheaval that forms part of the first half. Of the 70th week, right? The first four seals of the seven seals of the book of Revelation. Seal one through four are the, those four horsemen of the apocalypse that I mentioned earlier. So the first three and a half years, it's not going to be all hunky-dory here on planet Earth. There will still be upheaval and troubling times, you know, famines and earthquakes and 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 some sort of um of, of disruption of normal everyday life, but it will pale in comparison to what takes place starting the second half of the 70th week. Let's keep reading Van Campen and make some progress tonight. Referring to the prophecy of Daniel 
And it's what I keep keying, keying us into. There are other Antichrist types of figures that we can look at through history, right? We've got our, our Nero's and our uh, emperor, uh, uh, Governor Titus, who later became an emperor. And we've got our um, uh, rulers of the Ottoman Empires. And we've got our Hitler's and Mussolini's and, and our um, uh, you know dictators that have ruled the world here and there. And we've, we've even got some biblical figures, right? People who, who um, were part of God's people and then left God's people for whatever reason, you know, our Koroks and our, our rebellious bunches. Uh, um, you know, um, uh, we've got Saul, uh, who uh, God eventually rejected because of his disobedience. We've got um, uh, even King um, uh, David's son, uh, Solomon, who for a while um, was very disobedient to God um and god had to punish him so we've got people who can play the part of what we might call an antichrist someone who um initially looked like a good guy and then turned bad right good guy turned bad <clears throat> but ultimately we're going to be looking through these prophecies of daniel with a view towards what yeshua clued us into look to daniel understand this man antiochus because he's the um premier a uh, pre-runner or a uh, prototype of the coming Antichrist. So, referring to that prophecy of Daniel, Christ also warns those who will be living in Jerusalem at the time to flee when you see the abomination of desolation, the thing we're talking about, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, and this is the verse I quoted earlier, standing in the holy place, right? Matthew 24, 15. Uh, Van Hampen continues, and Paul adds that when, quote, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, right? This is a, another um, look at the Antichrist through the lens of um, the Apostle Paul himself, then um, or the object of worship, right? Then, Paul reminds us, he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, right? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3b and verse 4. In time, we'll look at those verses through the um, study of Tim Haig. I've got a little short excerpt from his notes on 2 Thessalonians that we'll glean some information from in time. But just remind yourself that in order for the Antichrist to be able to desecrate a temple, there has to be an existing structure. Currently, there is nothing that suits or fits this need in Israel today. We've got the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock up there, but none of that is Israeli-controlled, right? That's all Muslim-controlled. We've got the Western Wall, but that doesn't seem to fit the description of what Paul's talking about when he talks about the Antichrist taking his place in the Temple of God and declaring himself to be God. So we're likely going to see a third temple constructed by Rabbinic Judaism. This is not to be confused with Ezekiel's Millennial Temple that the Lord, that our Lord Yeshua Himself will endorse, that Yeshua will rule from and um, reign from and. Um, usher in righteousness from. Rather, we're probably looking at a, a, a third temple, that, what we might even call it an interim temple, some form of structure that allows um, worship and sacrificial um, offerings to, to um, start up again in Israel, whether it will be on the Temple Mount, right there near the Dome of Rock, we don't know, whether it'll be maybe somewhere in the courtyard near the Western Wall, some type of portable structure like a tabernacle, tent of meeting uh, type structure like we had in the Old Testament, we don't know. <clears throat> Either way, there has to be something that um, affords arrival of some form of sacrificial system that will allow the Antichrist to go in there and, and say, nope, sorry, no more, right? So he's going to renege on his agreement that he made with the Jewish people with Israel uh, three and a half years earlier and uh, turn on them at that point in time. 
And so um, we pick up this uh, concept right here in Van Campen's study. It was this first abomination of desolation by Antiochus that actually led to the eventual revolt of certain faithful Jews, the woman in Revelation chapter 12, under the Maccabees, right? Remember, the Maccabean time period is what we are familiar with because of the uh, festival of Hanukkah. Go back and study that in the book of Maccabees or just break out your old Hanukkah um, uh, book and start reading. That rebellion so incensed Antiochus that he not only was more determined than ever to eradicate Jewish religion, right? We're talking about this idea that Antiochus somehow got it in his mind that Judaism as religion needed to be done away with. I mean, what was so foul about Judaism as religion? Remember, anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism are basically demonic in their core, right to the core, because we know that Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the Torah. He hates God. He hates Messiah. He he hates all those who name the name of Yeshua. And thus, ultimately, he's going to do whatever he can to disrupt life for not just Jews, but ultimately Christians, because as much as Christianity likes to claim that she is separate from Judaism, Satan knows better. He knows that they're still connected as religions. And so, Antiochus sought to eradicate the Jewish religion at his time, you know, 200 years before Jesus. But when we get to uh, Antichrist in the future, he's also going to have Christianity to hate, right? He's going to hate Judaism, just like his forerunner Antiochus hated Judaism and the Jewish people and the Torah religion and the way of life, etc., etc. But now Antichrist is also going to have a reason to go after not just Jews, but Christians this time. So speaking of Antichrist or Antiochus, he also wanted to eradicate the entire Jewish race. So he not only hated uh, the religion of Judaism and Torah lifestyle, but he had a demonic um, hatred of the Jewish people as an ethnicity. Something like I said, and uh, um, you know, in our modern times, Hitler would probably fit the bill as the um, most re- uh, memorable or, or um, horrific Antichrist foreshadow in this particular um aspect as a side note this is kind of a a, a, i haven't mentioned this earlier but as a side note and maybe i'll bring these notes in later in in my study but as a side note van campen himself actually believed that hitler was a good candidate for the antichrist figure in the last days you're thinking how can that be hitler's dead aha the book of revelation gives details about the antichrist that he's some sort of man who's been either resurrected or raised up, brought back to life. Obviously, God himself is the only one who has the power of resurrection, so it would be for God's purposes. But Antichrist is a beast who is one of the seven heads of Satan's demonic empires that have existed down through history, but has been fatally wounded in the head and then brought back to life as the eighth beast empire. So he's he's the eighth, the Antichrist, but he's part of the seven that existed um, of all the seven empires. And when we look at those seven in the order of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then when we get to Rome being the um, uh, sixth, Rome begins to form this type and shadow of near and far prophetic telescoping of, of the Antichrist himself, where there's partial fulfillment, total fulfillment, Rome. And then that's the sixth, but now we have seven and eight. Well, who's the seventh and who's the eighth? Well, the eighth is Antichrist himself, the eighth beast, and one through six are the ones I just named. So who's the seventh? The seventh who existed in the middle of the gap 
time period between the 69 and 70th weeks, right? So existed in the church age. Some good candidates could either be some of the Caesars, like Nero or Titus, or could be someone a little later on down the road, such as someone from the Ottoman Empire, maybe an, Islam an Islamic figure, like we talked about, one of the um, um, one of the uh, 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 leaders, one of the Muslim clerics, or or, or you know one of those um, uh, uh, type person, uh, religious leaders in 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 Islam. Uh, during the Ottoman rule of that, or uh, in our modern times, could be Hitler, right? The um, Nazi regime that hit the scene. That could be that. That's a good candidate for Seventh uh, Beast Empire, which would make Hitler one of those seven beasts, one of those uh, total seven. Well, in that line, in that in that vein, um, Van Campen believes that Hitler's probably. Uh, likely the uh, Antichrist is going to be raised up because he'll be instantly recognized uh, when he finally um, reveals who he is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, kind of an interesting um, perspective. Let's continue with uh, Van Camp, but we still have we're only about halfway through the study. By the way, let me just glance at the um, time timer here, the marker. Yeah, we're at the halfway mark. Let's keep reading through Van Campen. Speaking of Antiochus, through numerous means, the Lord frustrated that satanic scheme against his chosen people, right? Praise God. Protecting the line through which Messiah the Lamb would come. We didn't read this in Van Campen, but if you've got the book, the sign, then you've already read this in previous chapters. The idea is that the reason Satan raised up all of these beast empires in hit throughout history, right? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, uh, let's just say... Um, the seventh empire, then the eighth, so one through seven. The reason Satan raised up these, I say Satan raised up, but he really usurped the authority of otherwise um, innocent people groups, and and he he used them like pawn uh, pieces, moving them on his his own chessboard for his agenda. But a primary reason that he utilized these beast empires throughout history was to seek to destroy the Jewish people as a whole and the covenant that God made with Israel. To wipe them from the face of the earth because he realized very early on in the prophecies that are found throughout the Tanakh that if he could wipe out the Jewish people as a people group, as a race, as an ethnicity, that he would frustrate the promises and prophecies of God to bring about the Messiah into the world through the people of Israel, through Abraham's offspring. So Satan sought to attack Abraham's offspring by bringing into um, uh, prominence uh, these wicked leaders and rulers and using their own um, unbelief in God to challenge the Jewish people. So when you go all the way back to Egypt, we've got the pharaohs, you know, Egypt, Assyria, um, uh, the, the Assyrians uh, attacked Israel and scooped away the northern tribes, right? Then we've got Bab uh, Babylon who um, swooped down and invaded Jerusalem and swept away uh, the southern tribes. And then moving into the Medes and the Persians, we still have these um, uh, attacks on Israel through uh, Haman. Uh, if you've read the book of Esther before, right, and have, have participated in the festival of um, Purim, right, that's the, around that time period when we have the Medes and the Persians and, and, and that time period of the Hamans, or you'd probably say Haman, who attacked, again, try, seek to wipe out the Jewish people um, and Esther and all of her, her kin, right? You guys know the story. And then moving from there, from the Medes and Persians into uh, uh, Greece, uh, it's this time period of, of the ruling of Greece uh, slash Syrian rule. 
um, with that we're talking about right now with Antiochus Epiphanes. So Antiochus becomes, again, one of those uh, seven rulers who sought to wipe out the Jewish people. Then moving into Rome, we already know what happened also in the time of Yeshua with the um, uh, uh, emperors at the time of Christ when he was born what happened he tried to wipe out all the Jewish babies by having them uh, killed and murdered and of course that's when the angel Gabriel or uh, the angel forewarned Mary and Joseph to flee into Egypt to escape this this genocidal um, um, murder of the babies because Satan was using those um, Roman rulers again to try and destroy not just the lineage of Jacob, but now seeking to just ultimately to destroy Messiah. So that's the legacy of Satan's satanically inspired beast empires, one through seven, or one through six, right up to Rome. So when we got to seven, if let's say it's Hitler, who's the bill for the seventh beast empire, well, then we know again, Hitler tried to exterminate the Jewish people, right? During the Holocaust. So he stepped right in line with what same agenda that Satan's been using for the last six beast empires, which is to seek to destroy the Jewish people as a whole, to to disqualify the lineage of Yeshua and disrupt the plans of God and the promises that God has made, not just with Israel as a people group, but ultimately that come to fruition through the Messiah. Of course, the Messiah's already been born now, so he can't do anything about that, but he can still seek to wipe out the Jewish people and eliminate God's um, revival of the Jewish people in the end days where God brings this, brings the physical lineage of Abraham into um, covenant of, uh, agreement with the spiritual lineage, i.e. the Christians, and ultimately the kingdom of God is ushered in. So Satan knows that if he can destroy the Jewish people physically, he can disrupt the physical kingdom of God coming to planet Earth uh, ushered in by Yeshua the Messiah himself. So he's going to seek to persecute the Jewish people once again with his eighth beast empire which is the antichrist so did everyone follow along with that long kind of overview it felt like kind of stephen in the book of acts where he's given this long historical view of israel right up to the point where he tells them you guys rejected the messiah you know then they stoned him all right okay let's keep reading um van campen and work our way through our notes like i said we've got plenty of time here van campen says speaking of these last days it will be the final abomination of desolation that is antichrist who will demand worship by the entire world with death being the cost of refusal and there will be jews unwilling to worship the beast or his image just like um there was during the time of antiochus um and faithful jews like the maccabees in the days of antiochus like i just said continuing when the great tribulation of antichrist is quote unquote cut short by the appearance of christ's coming these jews living and hiding will like the maccabees dwelling uh in the um in the judean wilderness that we read about during hanukkah they will revolt against antichrist and his armies in a campaign this author that has been campen refers to as the jehoshaphat campaign and he makes reference to a chapter in his book chapter 18 where he talks about the jewish counterattack. So what we're learning as we're studying, we're, we're, this is a look at eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi, and we're looking at the future Antichrist through the future model of, the, of eschatology, the futurist model that I hold to, not the preterist model, which says everything already happened in 70 AD and, one, and 130s, there's nothing really left to fulfill except the bringing in of the kingdom. No, I reject that model, although I do agree that certain 
partial fulfillment took place in 70s and the 130s uh 2000 years ago and that we can glean information from what took place historically and use that in our in helping us better understand what is likely to take place more fully in these last final days of the 70th week of daniel we're using largely the life and times of Antiochus Epiphanes, that wicked ruler who persecuted Israel and sought to wipe her from the face of the earth. He attacked her, but God fought for Israel. God is always going to fight for Israel, but sometimes it doesn't always look that way. So we're going to begin to start talking about this idea of tribulation as we eventually get into the um, more details surrounding the midpoint. And Van Campen's going to see, he's going to flesh this out for us as well. The idea that even though God has promised to protect Israel from her enemies, there's going to come a time when God allows Antichrist, just like he allowed Antiochus, he's going to allow Antichrist to persecute the holy ones, the people of God, and to have a measured amount of um, what shall we say, uh, is victorious um, uh, campaigning against the people of God. So so much so that when Yeshua talked about this midpoint event in Matthew 24, and we see the parallel in Mark and in Luke, particularly in Luke chapter 21, Yeshua doesn't say, stand and fight back. When you see Antichrist, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the Israel, uh, Jerusalem surrounded by your armies, take a stand, stand, you know, fight back because God's going to fight for you. That's not what Jesus said. What does Jesus say? He says, you guys need to flee. You need to get out. Why? Because God is going to allow Antichrist, just like he did Antiochus before, he's going to allow a measured amount of tribulation to take place and a, a slaughtering of certain amount of Jewish people. In fact, two-thirds of Israel will lose their life during that time. Let's pick up anti, uh, um, uh, Van Campen. As Zechariah predicted, in that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand and on the left. Right, we're speaking about um, uh, Israel fighting back and God fighting for her. They will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, that is, the armies of Antichrist. So, yes. There will come a time when God fights back for Israel, and in the middle of the quote I left off here, Zechariah continues, while the inhabitants again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem, Zechariah 12, 6. There will come a time when God fights back, but before then, prophetically speaking, we say that God is going to allow Antichrist to have a measured, I keep saying a measured amount, because remember, as powerful as the adversary is, as Horrific as Satan truly is, left uh, to do whatever he wants to do to God's people, as bad as it's going to get during the wrath of the devil, the wrath of Satan during that time, he's still on God's leash, right? He's not all-powerful. He cannot do anything he wants. And indeed, I believe that's what Yeshua referred to when he says, unless the days were cut short, no flesh would be saved. Because when Satan is thrown down to planet Earth during the midpoint of the week, like Revelation chapter 12 talks about, there's no more place found for him in heaven after he wars with Michael and, and the angels. Satan is cast down to Earth and he realizes that he only has a short time, which is described in many places in the Bible as three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, etc. He has this very short amount of time to wreak havoc on planet Earth, not just for the Jewish people, 
primarily, not just for Christians primarily, but ultimately for anyone who does not take his mark, the mark of the beast, bow down to the image, receive uh, the mark in their hand or the forehead, etc., etc., and declare that Satan is very God. So he's going to go on a rampage. And he's going to be wiping people out left and right. It'll be a time of great martyrdom. That's the fifth seal that's broken in the book of Revelation of the of the seven seals. The fifth seal is the, the great martyrdom that takes place on planet Earth. And so um, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed during that time. And yet people are going to probably be wondering, particularly Christians, if you're still around, which I believe the church will still be around. We're probably going to be scratching our heads saying, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you protecting us like you promised in Zechariah 12, 6, right? Why, why aren't you protecting us like you protected Israel during um, the times of the Maccabees, right? With the, with, the, with the campaigns, why aren't you? God's going to say, aha, I am going to protect you. But first, I have to push, put you through the crucible to, to um, purify you. My people have to be purified, right? The church is in in horrible compromise in the last in these last days um terrible terrible apostasy is going to take place in religious circles among jews and christians worldwide people denouncing god and jesus and denying any affiliation with uh, the bible and the true god so they can just save their own skins during this day it's going to be quite horrific and so there's going to be a great apostasy that paul uh, predicts will happen in the in the book of Thessalonians as well as his letters there we'll read about that in time so in closing um, let me see what I'm doing by way of time yeah well I'm not quite closing but as we're winding down uh, Van Campen we're going to now look at these seven significant parallels that we're uh, that we've been looking at between the Antiochus Epiphanes man and the future Antichrist these parallels that should catch our attention as we look at the book of Daniel look at histories antichrists that have come and gone with a view towards this coming heinous ruler who's going to once again seek to destroy god's people and destroy god's very name wipe it away from the face of earth and establish its own self-rule let's look at these parallels that and that um, van campen himself has um uh noticed and most of them you've probably heard many of them maybe some of them are new let's watch let's read the following seven similarities or parallels of Antiochus and Antichrist are the most significant and should be watched for as the sequence of events begins to unfold in the last days. Let's just read down through these and I'll try and read through them first without stopping so we can make some progress. First, and these are in no particular order, but first, under the guise of friendship and the promise of protection, both men make covenants with the nation of Israel. I might pause and interject that Antiochus himself sought to make agreements with the priesthood and prominent rulers of Israel that day. Um, we know that there was corruption in Israel and that there were many people who were willing to side with Antiochus in order to gain whatever peace uh, or profit that was to be gained from making a deal with the devil. Right, the same thing is going to happen when Antiochus, uh, sorry, when Antichrist hits the scene, he's going to make an accord agreement with Israel. But this time, the Book of Revelation, as well as Daniel, predicts that it will be a seven-year agreement. Oddly enough, as I interject, the Islamic Antichrist that we're going to be looking at in the near future here, within the next few weeks, within the, uh, uh, two or three weeks down the road with Joel Richardson, the Islamic prophecies and scriptures actually foretell of a coming religious ruler in their um, pro prophetic writings that 
speak of a seven-year peace treaty that is established as well. Isn't that interesting? We'll get to that in time. All right, so second, Van Campen reminds us, as in the days of Antiochus, many in Israel will again yield to this diabolical servant of Satan after the signing of the covenant, again seeking to gain the favor of this powerful world leader. You're always going to have people who are going to trade land for peace in the Middle East, right? That's that's always been a determining factor of who should we agree with? Whose side should we take? The people over there are desperate for peace, yes, but they're desperate for land. And so it's not going to be any surprise that many Israelis and, and uh, people in prominent leadership positions in the Middle East are going to yield to the Antichrist's covenantal agreement to have a measured amount of um, you know, peace amongst themselves in trade for X amount of favors from the Antichrist. You know, he'll be in control. He obviously is not going to be able to levy out those types of favors unless he has that power and he has that wealth and he has that res those resources at his disposal. So he he will be a prominent figure at that time and probably will make headlines when the uh, time comes and we can be looking at that. Third, Van Campen mentions, after making their treaties with Israel, while Israel lives under a false sense of security, both men seek to conquer Egypt and then return to ravage Israel and desecrate her temple. Remember, for the longest time I've been talking about this now and not yet, prophetic, telescoping, near-far aspects of Daniel's prophecies that start, started way back in chapter 7, and don't finish till you get to the end of Daniel. So 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Read all of that together one of these days. And notice how that the, the prophecies that God gave to Daniel through these dreams, these four prominent um, visions and dreams that include Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2, Daniel's dream in chapter 7, then the, the ram and the goat in chapter 8, and then finally culminating in the, um, uh, the, uh, the little horn and the Antichrist in chapters 11 and 12. What we have in these um, visions of Daniel, the four visions, uh, are a look at the end-time events as seen through the lens of the forerunner Antiochus and then the final fulfillment of Antichrist himself. And so what's important, as we're noticing, is that um, the near-far aspect is in view. When you're reading through the prophecies, you're not always certain, are these words talking about Antiochus? which was future to Daniel, right? A couple hundred years future in Daniel's day, like what, 400 years, I believe. Or are they Antichrist, which was like now 2,000 years since or more since Daniel, right? Which one was it? And the, the, the uh, answer to your question is it's now and not yet. It's near and far. It's a little bit of Antichrist and a little, I'm sorry, a little bit of Antiochus and a little bit of Antichrist. So it's, it's, it's both men in view, but you have to kind of watch for where Certain details kind of leap off the page that say, well, this has to be Antichrist, or this could be Antiochus in partial, but Antichrist in total. So um, how much of overlap there will be, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, uh, Van Campen is just kind of highlighting uh, some of the places where, they, where there's obvious overlap, where because of the benefit of history past, we can now look at Antiochus and go, ah, okay, that already happened. We read through the book of Daniel, we look at our history book, and we go, aha, uh -huh, there are parts of history of Daniel now that already took place partially, but might just turn around 
and happened again verbatim. I mean, honestly, almost all of Daniel's prophecy starting in chapter 7 and working right to chapter 12, almost all of it could really come to pass again with the Antichrist including bringing back the four of the seven beasts that we uh, that that are mentioned in the book of revelation right going back in daniel's uh day to babylon babylon medo persia greece rome those four you know we're skipping the first two egypt and assyria which are chopin in in john's revelation but in daniel we had starting with the beasts in daniel was babylon was the first one mentioned to daniel because that was the most relevant to his day because he was living in the time of exile above from babylon so babylon then medo persia then greece then rome or rome slash maybe the ottomans right if you're going to follow the islamic model but the point being is that um when we look at the prophecies of Daniel, it's entirely possible and probable that there will be a revival of those four of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome when the time of anti of, of Antichrist comes. You're thinking, what, Ariel? How could that happen? How could Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome revive? Well, number one, those land masses didn't disappear. Those those places in the Middle East geographically, you know, Iraq and and Iran and Syria and Turkey and uh, those places uh, in Upper Egypt and stuff. And 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 um, modern day parts of Greece, right? Obviously, Europe is where Rome existed in the past. These places, landmass, they still exist. Of course, we can have a revival of those um, of those kingdoms, but maybe not to the power that they once had. They won't be world powers again, but we can certainly have a revival of some authoritative structure and leadership from within those geographical areas. So much so that it registers in the prophecies as those. Um, nations so the stone that strikes the statue at the feet at the ten toes area is said to wipe out all of those metals at once go back and read daniel's prophecy in daniel chapter 7 again so what that means is that if they're wiped out all at once going all the way back to uh, egypt which does still exist today right if it goes all the way back to assyria is just syria they just add another letter to their name and other countries assyria becomes syria but all of those seven beast empires are basically going to be existent in existence when Antichrist hits the scene. So some 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 way. Let's keep reading. Let me let me look at my time here. Oh, we're doing good. We got about ten minutes left. Let's keep reading. We might even make it through all seven of these um, parallels. Van Campen says fourth. Both men proclaim themselves to be gods and demand worship from their subjects, and those Jews who refuse become the primary target of their wrath. Now remember, there's two primary models for Antichrist figures in the, in the future. One of the models is what we might call a European Antichrist, where the Antichrist right, rises up out of maybe a European unit, a revived Roman Empire. And so he, he comes from European uh, ancestry and brings that um, kind of perspective to the table of discussion on end time events, of course, he still ends up broking a peace with Israel and turning on Israel in the midpoint and persecuting her and Christians, etc., etc. But he rises out of maybe European ancestry, maybe German ancestry, etc., etc. That's one model. Another prominent model that we're going to be looking at in time, as, as I keep wetting your appetite towards this, is an Islamic Antichrist model where the Antichrist is raised up not out of European stock, but comes instead from ancient either Iranian or Syrian or some type of of arabic stock muslim stock some background there and in that view he's still going to persecute jews but a primary difference is that perhaps earlier on 
Islam is not going to be under his um, gun when it comes time to declare himself to be God over, uh, over all gods. Are you guys kind of understanding what I'm saying? In the first model, with a European Antichrist, he has every good reason to, at the midpoint of the week, declare himself to be God, sit in the temple, declare himself to be God, and oppose every god or so-called god, an object of worship, like Paul says in Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians. And in so doing, he's going to obviously oppose Judaism, Christianity, and in the in the in the European model version of Antichrist, I can see him even opposing Islam, because he's going to declare his own version of one world religion. And everyone's going to have to yield to that. We don't know exactly what that might look like, but in the European model, it might resemble a form of ecumenism, ecumenical type of you know, a, a, a conflate, a conflating of all the religions together, mixing them together, a, a a kind of washing them all together, mixing them together, kind of like a melting pot, as it were, and and smoothing them all out and saying that they're all owe their allegiance to him. That's one version, but in the Islamic antichrist model i could easily see him saying declaring that israel and judaism and christianity and all other forms of religion you've got to get out of the picture you've got to go away and only islam is the only allowable religion i could see him going in that direction so we're talking about uh, who's going to be the primary target of his wrath in that in the day well it kind of depends on which model of antichrist you go with all right van campen says let's see what i'm doing by time doing great five minutes uh, fifth, both tyrants have to contend with these groups of Jews who refuse to worship or serve them and who foment considerable dissension and opposition from the rural areas surrounding the city of Jerusalem when they learn of the despot's true character and intentions um, regarding Israel, right? So just like in the day of Antiochus, when Antichrist hits the scene, not everybody's going to just um, bend over backwards uh, for him. There are obviously going to be people who oppose him, uh, both there in the Middle East as well as worldwide, who aren't going to yield to his one world religion and government and politics and policies and everything. Of course, he's going to go say off with your head if you don't do what I say, but there are a lot of people who would rather die than um, serve the Antichrist. When he goes and declares himself to be God, there are a good number of religious people worldwide, Jews, Christians, Muslims, uh, Buddhists, uh, uh, you know, Catholics, you name it, and uh, many different religions, they're going to say, no, we, we don't recognize you as our religious leader. Um, we will continue to worship our God and our religion, and if you have to kill us for it, oh well, so be it. But we also know that there's going to be a group of people who are going to not just say not just say we won't bow, but they're going to fight back, and that'll be primarily starting in uh, Israel and Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, just like the Maccabees, uh, you know, um, uh, went through. What did they do? They um, they conducted these kind of guerrilla warfare campaigns against Antiochus back in the day, and eventually. They won, right? Praise God. All right, let's keep let's wind things down with the sixth here. Uh, Van Kempen says, sixth, following the defeat of Antiochus and the cleansing of the temple that had been defiled by him, the nation of Israel initiated the feast of Hanukkah or Chenukah, the festival of the lights or of dedication. 
And um, those of you who've attended any Messianic congregation or uh, participated in a Hanukkah celebration, you guys know exactly what we're talking about. Why do we celebrate Hanukkah? Because we had to rededicate the temple because Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated it and God fought back and fought for his people and eventually won the victory for his own name. And thus we now um, celebrate not just the rededication of the temple, but the return to our way of worship as we understand it that God has um, uh, dictated for us as Jewish people and as Christians. Um, in closing, Van uh, uh, Campen reminds us, this festival commemorates Israel's deliverance from that ungodly tyrant Antiochus and celebrates the restoration of the temple and the purification of its altars. So even if you're not Christian today in closing, um, I invite you to investigate Hanukkah. Find out what it's all about. You just might find yourself becoming involved in events that are similar to what took place in, uh, during Hanukkah in these last days when Antichrist hits the scene and causes even uh, uh, an even greater Hanukkah to have to take place. Because we've we read in the story, and I'll close with this. Um, let, me, let me read this last line from Van Camp, and then I'll draw our study to a close. Van Camp reminds us, it also looks forward to, the, that is Hanukkah, looks forward to the eventual return of God's glory to the temple. So what, we're, what we've learned tonight in closing and summary is that there are these parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes, the forerunner of Antichrist, and Antichrist himself. And this entire study at this perspective is a look through the lens of the historical man known as Antiochus Epiphanes and how he ravaged Israel and tried to force the um, subjugation of Israel as a people group and tried to destroy the Jewish religion and the Torah way of life and to to desecrate God's temple, and, um, and he robbed the temple, and he just left it in shambles, and he tried to um, really destroy the, the Jewish people there, but God intervened. And so the lessons that we're learning as I'm drawing our study to a close with, and we'll stop at um, parallel number six, we'll pick us up next week, right in the middle with a kind of a cliffhanger and pick up with number seven next week. What we're learning is that as bad as it's going to get when, anti when uh, Antichrist hits the scene, if you've read it in the book, and you have hope, and your hope is anchored in the true Christ, not the Antichrist, not the false Christ, not the fake one, but the genuine, the true Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, then His Holy Spirit has prepared you for these tribulational times that are going to befall planet Earth someday soon. And so you can be rest assured that even if you lose your life, even if you're one of the martyred, you can be assured that someday God will rescue his people. And if you've read the end of the book, particularly Revelation, even the end of parts of Daniel, then you'll realize, like for instance, Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12, then you realize that ultimately God is going to fight for his people. You can read Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14 and see the picture that one day God will send his son Messiah to uh, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, split that mountain in half, and he's going to fight for his people, not just Israel in that day, but he's going to fight for um, the church as well. And so ultimately, Yeshua, our true Messiah, he's going to usher in his thousand-year kingdom of righteousness here on planet Earth. And guess what's going to happen to the Antichrist? Don't mean to spoil it for you, but, you know, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the Antichrist, he goes bye-bye, right? He gets destroyed. Or he gets thrown alive into the uh, the lake of fire, uh, and we have to uh, uh, reconcile those two passages. Is he destroyed? Is he thrown alive into the lake of fire? The point is, he gets taken out of the scene, right? He gets taken out of the way, and God will have his day. So we're going to close with that tonight. We'll pick this up next week and see if we can finish Van Campen's notes, and that'll um, 
park us right back in front of, as I mentioned at the beginning of this study an hour ago, topic seven that we're going to get to is excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. You don't want to miss that uh, study. It's going to be quite fascinating. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes to continue through our look at Psalm 110 verse 1, which reads out of the NASB. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What we're doing is we're borrowing our notes from biblicalunitarian.com's website, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, which is a non-Trinitarian website, a non-denominational uh, Christian denomination, non-Trinitarian Christian denomination. They do not espouse to Trinity. They believe that Jesus is a human who was exalted by God his Father. He now sits at the right hand of God, but he came into history in the first century through the womb of his mother Mary. He did not predate his own human existence, except for in the mind of God in eternity past. That's where the name and person of Jesus existed in God's mind 
in eternity, but not as the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. They do not believe in a divine Messiah who has existed from all eternity with this and shares the same nature and essence as god so their view of the holy spirit and i flashed this on the screen in post-production their perspective of god is that he's the one and only god the only divine being that exists he is numerically one to himself there are no other gods small g lower g capital g etc there's just god that's it god the father he's the only one there is the god of the old testament is god the father of and he's the god of jesus Jesus himself is a human being, born of Mary, and exalted by God, and sits at the right hand of God. And the Holy Spirit is just another name for God the Father, who is pure spirit, or at times it refers to God's power, his impersonal force, that is gifted uh, to mankind uh, for special purposes. But that's their perspective, which I reject. We are reading through the verse in question, Psalm 110.1, to try and ascertain who are the who's the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord. Is it the pre-existent Yeshua, the eternal Messiah, the Word of God made flesh, who came and dwelt among us, like John 1 tells us about? Is that who the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord is? Or is he simply the human Messiah that now does sit at the right hand of God, but he's not divine? Biblical Unitarian says that it's a non-divine, a human being, who's sitting at the right hand, and that's who David saw when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. Trinitarians take the opposite uh, view, that if this is the divine Messiah that David foresaw way back when the Holy Spirit revealed to him that this was the second person of the Trinity sitting at the right hand of the first person of the Trinity. So let's pick up the reading. We haven't even finished Biblical Trinitarian's explanation of this um, figure. So let's read theirs before I provide any refutation. Here's what they have to say. Let me back up one paragraph and segue into where we left off. We read this last week, but I'll read it again. The New Testament, when it quotes Psalm 110.1, renders Ladoni as to my Lord, Tokuriamu. Now let me back up. I'm sorry, but it renders Adonai, Psalm 110, verse 5, and very often elsewhere as the Lord, Kurios. So, what biblical Unitarian, the non-Trinitarian denomination, wants us to understand is they're going to remind us that there are two Hebrew words found in the Bible that are used to portray this English word, Lord. Let me look at the um, uh, rendering in English for one moment. We have the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D version of Lord, and then we have the capital L, lowercase o-r-d version of Lord as well. In other passages and in certain Bibles, we also have a capital L and then a shrunken capital O-R-D that shows up in your Bible. But primarily what Biblical Unitarian wants to remind us, and remember they're dealing with some facts here, is that when the Bible wants to remind us, when the Bible wants to portray Yahweh God, right, the Tetragrammaton, person of God, the being Y-H-V-H, in the Hebrew, it uses what you see right here on your screen. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's um, a representation of the original Hebrew yod heh vav -Hey. However, when it wants to convey the uh, a different human being who's simply an earthly ruler or an exalted person, then it uses capital L, lowercase o-r-d, or sometimes lowercase l-o-r-d, depending on context. But what we find in our Bibles, as I scroll down to verse 5 so that you can see this, is that in verse 5, the context demands that this is actually yod heh The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Or, 
at the very least, the demands that we have to contend with is this the human being sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, right? Yahweh? Or is this Yahweh himself? The Lord is at your right hand. Who's at whose right hand, right? Who's at the right hand of whom is the question. Well, the Hebrew helps us out. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself and tip my hand too quickly. But um, Biblical Unitarian reminds us that sometimes when the Bible wants to talk about Yahweh, but uses the Hebrew word Adonai, the English translation is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. But the Hebrew is Adonai. Comparatively, when the Bible wants to speak of the human um, ruler, uh, an exalted person, a person of, of high uh, of importance or of prominent leadership, it uses L-O-R-D, not in all caps, like the top one there, but the Hebrew is Adoni. So going back to what um, Biblical Unitarian is trying to explain to us, we have two Hebrew words, Adoni and Adonai. And they 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 sound differently, right? Adoni, Adonai, and they're spelled differently in the Hebrew. Let me flash another uh, graphic in front of you. We saw this last week as well. On the right side of your screen, you have Adonai, A D O N A I, with a different vowel representation underneath the consonants, so the the, the pronunciation is different in traditional uh, hearing. So Adonai, this is referring to God. It's pronounced as Adon plus the word I. And it's a title reserved exclusive for God. We don't find this pronunciation used of human beings or any other person other than God. Adonai is God alone exclusively. <clears throat> Comparatively, on the left side of your screen, you have Adoni. If you take away the vowels, the little dots and dashes that are above and below the letters, it's the same consonantal letters, right? But the vowel markings are different, thus the pronunciation is different, and it turns out to be Adoni. And so this word, pronounced as Adon plus E-E, double E, Adoni nearly always refers to human superiors, but both of these are translated as Lord in your Bibles. So that's where the challenge comes in. You have to know just a little bit of Hebrew uh, to appreciate this argument that Biblical Unitarian is bringing to the table. So that's where we're picking up this discussion. They continue. In other words, speaking of the Greek translation, it translates Adoni as my Lord and Adonai as the Lord. So they're going to get a little bit technical for us, and we're going to get technical right back when we come time, when the time comes to refute their argument that when the Greek translators of, this, of the Tanakh from the Hebrew into Greek took place 200 years before Christ and before the use of the um, Greek scriptures by Jesus and his first century apostles, right, the first century Jewish people, the LXX Septuagint, which let me just show it to you on the screen right now. The LXX Septuagint here has the word for uh, Yodhe Vavhe showing up as one word and the word for Adoni showing up here. And if you can see in the Greek, they look very similar. We have Kudios on the left side and Kudio Mu on the right side of my screen, the ones that I'm highlighting. And so the one on the left side of the screen right here is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? The Lord, God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, in the Greek here it's tokuriomu, the Lord of me, literally. But notice what the Greek does. It takes the two differing Hebrew words of Yahweh and Adoni and turns them both into something similar, which is kudios slash kudios. Kudio, which is simply the same root word. So, 
that's the challenge before us as well. Um, let's keep reading what um, <clears throat> uh, Biblical Unitarian has to say about this matter and see if we can finish their explanation so that'll poise us and get us prepared to begin to provide our own refutation from a Trinitarian perspective. So they go on to say that this proves that the difference between Adonai and Adoni was recognized and reported in Greek long before the Masoretic vowel points fixed the ancient oral tradition permanently in writing. And what I keep mentioning as I interject once again is that what Biblical Unitarian is providing for us is true for, to a certain perspective, right? To a certain degree, you can teach, for instance, example from the New Old Testament exclusively and still be teaching truth you can leave out the new testament and you're still teaching truth but the point is the danger is that you're teaching incomplete truth if you don't bring the new testament into your uh scope of teaching in my little example here what th how this relates back to biblical unitarian as a denominational religion in my understanding is that when they have arguments like they're having right now about the original Hebrew words and the original Greek words and their explanation of Adoni, Adonai, and, and Kurios, and Tokuriomu, and things like that, is they're giving us only half the picture. But the half that they're giving us is rooted in truth, and it contains a lot of truth. So I, I respect that, and I acknowledge that truth, but my warning or my suggestion is you need to read the whole picture. Stop cutting yourself short as a as a unitarian christian with placing all the authority that and um of the revelation of god in the old testament allow the rest of the bible to have its say in your life from an authoritative perspective god is trinity because he revealed himself as trinity in the interim period between your between the pages of your bible between the old testament and new testament that little margin page right there or that that place in the bible where it sinks down into the margin that's where trinity was revealed uh to human beings in the incarnation and so the apostolic scriptures the writings of the new testament form the explanation of the rest of the story of the rest of the picture of this otherwise what it seemed like to be singular one person god one self god that was described in the old testament the the, the trinity itself the the mysterious nature of the incarnation was just that it was mystery it was hidden from humans view by god himself right god himself created the mystery of the incarnation in the old testament and thus if we want to understand who god is from god's perspective we can't just stop with our um examination of the old testament the tanakh we've got to carry through through to the new testament and that is what biblical unitarian simply is not doing for us they're not giving us the full story so let's keep reading their explanation it is truth but it's only partially uh true because they're only giving us uh, half the picture let's keep reading it's interesting this is their perspective it's interesting that scholars have often not paid close attention to the text of Psalm 110 or the places it is quoted in the New Testament and uh, have stated that it shows that Christ must have been God. They continue, the well-known Smith's Bible Dictionary contains an article on uh, Son of God written by Ezra Abbott. And so Mr. Abbott has these uh, notes to say. Let's keep reading. Let me scroll up there. This is Biblical Unitarian quoting in Mr. Abbott. Accordingly, we find that after the ascension, the apostles labored to bring 
the Jews to acknowledge that Jesus was not only the Christ, but was also a divine person, even the Lord Jehovah. Thus, for example, St. Peter, Abbott goes on to say how Peter said, they, they, they truncate here, he goes on to say how Peter uh, said that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. So they got this quote uh, from Mr. Abbott there. All right, they go on to say that we believe Abbott's conclusion is faulty because he did not pay attention to the exact wording of the Hebrew text. So they're challenging Mr. Abbott, who's obviously a Trinitarian-leaning author, they're challenging his understanding of the Bible because they believe that Mr. Abbott incorrectly understood the um, Hebrew text. And honestly, it's it's quite unfortunate, that, as I interject, that many Christians don't move beyond their own English translations when they're dealing with these particular topics. And so when an outfit like uh, Biblical Unitarian comes along and starts um, highlighting the original Hebrew and the original Greek, all of the technicalities start going over the head of your average Christian who isn't used to using a biblical dictionary or lexicon, etc. And so they begin to say, wow, this sounds accurate. Sounds very scholarly. Sounds like they did their homework. They must know what they're dealing with. I mean, if, if, they're, if they can navigate through the original languages, they must have some uh, authoritative say on the matter. Kind of like the way um, uh, well-meaning uh, Christians get duped into following after Jehovah's Witness theology when it comes to Trinitarian perspective, because the um, Jehovah's Witnesses are famous for having their um, or uh, and or Mormon theology, Book of Mormon, Latter Day Saints. Either one works, but um, both of those uh, cultic groups are famous for having their own versions of the Bible that highlight different um, original. Uh, languages to somehow teach that um, their version of God is the true version. So, Biblical Unitarian continues, they say, even scholars who contributed to Smith's Dictionary of the Bible apparently agree, they say, because there is a footnote uh, after the above quotation that they just had that corrects it. The footnote states, and listen to this correction, in ascribing to St. Peter the remarkable uh, proposition that, quote, God hath made Jesus Jehovah, end quote, the writer of the article appears to have overlooked the fact that kurion, which is Lord in Acts 2.36, refers to tokurio mu, my Lord, in verse 34, quoted from Psalm 110.1, where the Hebrew correspondent is not Jehovah, but Adon, the common word for Lord or Master, lowercase l, lowercase m, in both of those renderings. Uh, Biblical Unitarian continues, St. Peter Peter's meaning here may be illustrated by his language elsewhere, and they reference Acts 5.31, where Peter calls Jesus a prince with a lowercase p, etc. So, what Biblical Unitarian does is they reject the Trinitarian model of the Psalm 110.1 passage that we're looking at, even using New Testament quotes, because here's the mystery that's hidden from Biblical Unitarian. Here's their weakness, here's their blind spot. They do accept that Jesus is human. They accept that he's Lord, lowercase l. They accept that he's exalted at the right hand of Yahweh, right? His God, Adonai in the Hebrew text. They accept that Jesus has been put in a position of preeminence and that he is the name above all names that men must call upon for salvation. They understand that perspective. And to the degree that they call upon the name of Jesus for personal salvation, I recognize biblical Unitarians as my genuine brothers. So don't get me wrong there. But where their blindness lies is in um, the fact that they only understand and articulate 
half of the story when it comes to the incarnation. Remember, here's the secret. We Trinitarians believe and affirm that Jesus is truly human. He's 100% human, but that's only half the picture. What's the other half? He's truly divine, 100% divine. He's truly God, fully God, but he's truly human and fully human. He's both. He has the dual natures, right? That's the mystery of the incarnation, and that is the the blindness of biblical Unitarians. So when they read passages like we're reading, they're only seeing the half where Jesus is human. And so they're going to highlight all these passages in the Old, Old Testament that point to a coming human Messiah. And they're going to correlate that with all those passages in the New Testament where the human Messiah is in full view. And they're going to say, see, there you have it. The Bible presents a human Jesus. But what they're missing is that the Bible also presents a divine Jesus, a divine Messiah. And so they're going to either ignore or reject those passages that highlight the divinity of Messiah and the divinity of Jesus himself. They push against them, ultimately rejecting not just those passages, but ultimately rejecting their whole books or like some in um, these uh, discussions of non-Trinitarian circles, they end up rejecting all of the New Testament altogether and throwing it out and just basically becoming monotheistic Jews. All right, let me look at my time. All right, you're doing good. Let's keep reading through Biblical Unitarian. We might be able to finish their uh, view tonight. I can't promise it. If not, we'll pick this up next week. They continue. The footnote is quite correct. For the word in Psalm 110 is the word for a Lord lowercase l or master lowercase m and not God. Thus, Psalm 110 gives us very clear evidence that the expected Messiah of God was not going to be God himself, but a created being. Let me pause and interject one more time. I can't resist. One other a glaring weakness of the biblical Unitarian perspective when it comes to these Trinitarian discussions is the fact that they truly believe that um, not just a human Messiah is in view in the scriptures, but they also want us to believe that what the Masoretes gave to us, not just in the pronunciation, of Adoni versus Adonai, not just in the eventual later um, punctuation of those letters with the dots and dashes that we find in the Hebrew script. Not only that, but the the um, translation from the Hebrew into the Greek 200 years before Christ. What Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe is that all of that was actually God-inspired. Here's the challenge, and this is a challenge for us as Trinitarians as well. On the one hand, we do believe that what God did through the Masoretic families of preserving the pronunciations and the, the dots and the dashes that they eventually put in, as well as the um, translation from uh, Hebrew into Greek. I'm not saying the Masoretes did that, but the, the scribal family that did that in the tradition that came along with that and the translation the result itself. We do believe that all that was superintended by God to a certain degree. Right? It didn't escape God's view. God allowed all that to happen the way it did, right? The the Masoretes to oversee the scribal, the transmission of, of Hebrew from one generation to the next over the, the hundreds of years that it took for this to take place. 
plus the um, copying and transmitting and translation from the that original Hebrew, from some original Hebrew uh, text manuscript into the Greek that we have now. Yes, God oversaw all that, and the Holy Spirit has used that for His purposes. However, there's a very important point here that either Biblical Unitarian is not telling us, or that many Trinitarians might not be aware of. It's still tradition, people. Listen. The Masoretic tradition of the pronunciation of Adoni versus Adonai and the Greek translation of the Kudios and the Tokuriomu and all that stuff, all of that is Jewish tradition. And indeed, when it comes to the vowel point markings that we show, that we see in our, in our Hebrew Bibles, that was even later than the Apostolic Scripture time. That came after the first century when Jesus has already come and gone, the apostles already lived and died when those vowel points got written down and added to the text. That's a later invention. That's like 4th century or something to that effect. After the 1st century, what's the point I'm trying to bring up? The point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that as important as the Masoretic tradition of preserving the pronunciation of the Adoni versus Adonai and the addition of the vowel pointings later on, as well as the um, trans, uh, translation from the Hebrew into the Greek and the Kudios and Tokuriomu and all that stuff, as important as that is for our biblical studies, and it is important, it's still foundationally uh, undergirded by a Jewish tradition. What's my point? It's entirely possible and plausible that they got that tradition wrong and that they were acting inappropriately um, to preserve God's name on God's behalf in creating traditions because of their, um, they, the Jewish scribal traditions, their aversion to wanting to, to pronounce God's name and say his name and to to hide it very carefully uh, with clever signs and symbols and dashes and dots and and uh, changing what was written in the text. Oh yes, there are scribal emendations in the text where what was what was originally written by the original author got changed out by the later scribes. Is this a lie? Is this deception? Well, on one hand it is, but on the other hand it's not entirely deceptive. They were trying to preserve and protect God's reputation. They, at least they thought they were. But the point I'm trying to make is, how do we know that when we go back over to um, uh, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, how do we know that? We know that here it's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh Yod said to Adon either E or Adonai, right? Depending on where the vowel markings fall. The point I'm trying to make is it's entirely possible that the original had the uh, Yahweh says to Adonai rather than Yahweh says to Adoni, the human, right? Remember, Adonai is the divine person, whereas Adoni is the human person, the human being. So, uh, uh, my point is, biblical Unitarian and non-Trinitarians are placing a lot on the tradition. They're they're putting a lot of their, they're banking a lot of their theology in a tradition of Judaism, which, when it comes to the vowel markings, was born out of a time when anti-Messianic Jewish sentiments were already the norm, when rabbinic Judaism was already the norm, when a rejection of Jesus as Messiah and any form of Messianic um, uh a recognition of Jesus was the norm in Judaism. That's when those vowel markings were put in place to make it um, kind of known beyond a shadow of a doubt, as it were, that one one word says Adoni and another word says Adonai. That's kind of where some of that tradition picked up uh, and and was uh, that isn't where it started, but at least it's where it was kind of um, set in stone with 
from thence, thenceforth and forevermore. Now all the vowel markings kind of followed after that rendering. Likewise, with the uh, Greek translation, um, we already had tradition set into place for the uh, the, the kurios and the tokurio mu. But we're going to find that that's going to come around and bite them in, in the behind also. But let's let's keep going. Let me look at my time. All right, I got about five minutes left. Let's keep reading uh, Biblical Unitarian's uh, explanation. All right, so they're getting technical, so we're going to have to get technical with our own uh, reputation. They go on to say that the Jews listening to Peter on the day of Pentecost would supposedly, I add, clearly see the correlation in Peter's teaching that Jesus was, quote, a man approved of God, end quote, verse 22 in the KJV, and a created being, the my lowercase l-o-r-d of psalm 110 which peter quoted just shortly thereafter verse 34. again this just kind of drives me crazy i can't resist interjecting this drives me crazy with their their strong assumption that just because there are passages in the tanakh that foretell of a human messiah which correlate to passages in the new testament that that um demonstrate the human messiah that somehow this proves that Jesus is only a human Messiah. This is the viewpoint of Biblical Unitarian. It's an assumption on their part. They assume that just because, yes, it's true that there are passages in the Tanakh that foretell of a human Messiah, and B, in our, in our syllogism, there are passages in the New Testament that affirm and um, uh, demonstrate human qualities of Messiah, then the conclusion that's drawn from the biblical Unitarian model, the conclusion that Jesus must be only human. And that's an incorrect conclusion. It doesn't follow from the premises that are listed in my little syllogism here. Um, this is the same way that they treat God as a person. They read all of the um, statements about a God in the Old Testament and God being the sole God that exists, the one true God, the only God there is, right? I'm Yahweh by myself, all by myself, right? The Isaiah passages starting in chapter uh, 40, working your way through about like 45, Isaiah, somewhere around there. God talks about he's the only one who created, he's the only creator there, and that, you know, there was no one like him. I'll flash a few verses in post uh, so you can see what I'm talking about. You know, I, I'm the only God that was around. There's none, there were no other gods around me. I, I'm the only one who created everything, but et cetera, et cetera. I'm paraphrasing. So, Biblical Unitarian takes that view of God as a single uh, being who is the only God, the being, the only being of God, and they incorrectly assume that this means that the, that the being of God who is a single being, is also a single person. So when it comes to Shema, where it says, Here is the Lord our God, the Lord is one, they insert the notion of God is one person, instead of correctly understanding that what the Shema is teaching is that God is one being. Even though it doesn't have the word being in the Hebrew, the Greek actually um, carries that thought. Uh, if we were to read the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4, into the um, Greek. But heroes are the Lord of God, the Lord is one. It stops at the word one in English, but the understanding that's conveyed by the meaning of the Shema there is that the Lord our God, the Lord is one being. He's one God. There's only one being. He is the only true God there is. Therefore, worship Him alone, exclusively. The Lord alone. The Lord is exclusively our God. But biblical Unitarian inserts their own understanding of the Shema by asserting that what the Shema is really teaching us, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one person, even though the word person doesn't show up there. Well, they're doing the same here with the lowercase l-o-r-d and, and New Testament passages that highlight the human quality of this Messiah known as Jesus. See, they say, here's proof positive that Adoni, lowercase l-o-r-d, is the 
the human uh, Messiah that was foretold that he's only human and he's not much more. In other words, they're conveniently leaving out the divine attributes and qualities that are carried along by the New Testament passages that we haven't even really touched on. They continue, the use of Adoni in the first verse of Psalm 110.1 makes it very clear that the Jews were not expecting their Messiah to be God, but were expecting a human Lord. And here's my monkey wrench. Let me see how much time I got. I'm, I'm running out of time. So I've reached the end, which is exactly where I wanted to be. But in closing, before I throw my monkey wrench in, let me just uh, summarize. We've been looking at this Trinitarian model, uh, model of God and comparing it to the non-Trinitarian model. And we're really looking at how Biblical Unitarian, a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination, understands verses like Psalm 110.1, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make me your enemies a footstool for your feet. They understand that the first Lord in the passage is the Lord our God, Yahweh. But the second Lord... Uh, carried along by the Masoretic tradition is Adoni. And this, according to Biblical Unitarian, is proof positive that the Jewish people were expecting a human Messiah. And so um, they're banking a lot on the Jewish tradition of Adoni versus Adonai, another rendering found in the Hebrew but differentiated only by the vowel markings and the vowel pronunciation. So the monkey wrench that I'm throwing into their explanation here in closing, and I'll close with this, is that if the Masoretes were carrying an incorrect tradition from the beginning, then they have tripped over their own blindness to the divine Messiah that God was actually revealing and going to reveal Right? He was hiding in mystery in the Old Testament, but he was going to reveal them, reveal him in the incarnation in the New Testament. And so what if the original Hebrew didn't say, Yahweh said to Adoni, like Biblical Unitarian is banking on, what if instead it really said, Yahweh said to Adonai? Well, then we have a, um, a, a clear case of where Yahweh God said to Adonai, but, but who's Adonai? Well, Adonai is also God, another title for God. And so what we have is Adonai speaking to Adonai, or Yahweh speaking to Adonai, or God speaking to God, person to person. So that's the challenge I want to present as I draw my study to a close, is that yes, the scribal traditions are somewhat reliable. I mean, I'm not telling you to throw out your Masoretic Hebrew. I'm not telling you to say, don't trust what you're reading in your Hebrew Bible with all the vowels and dots and dashes, etc. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that many Christians are not aware of the fact that A, it's a tradition, Right, both the vowel um, pronunciation as well as the vowel markings, and B, in, in the case of the vowel markings, it was added during a time when Judaism had already made a break from the Messianic belief that Jesus is the Messiah. They had already decided in, uh, against Jesus as the Messianic con candidate, and they had made that decision that Jesus was a failure. He was not the Messianic one they were looking for. Therefore, they reject the notion of Jesus being the Messiah, whether human or divine. They simply reject Jesus. And in doing so, they're rejecting God's Spirit as revealed through the Messiah and uh, conveyed to the Messiah. And in doing so, they're rejecting God ultimately. So that's the blindness of the Masoretic families when they um, put in ink the little dots and dashes that show up in your little Hebrew text which came, like, if I remember correctly, if memory serves, like uh, 400 years after the first century, right? In the fourth century, something like that, right? So, 
those are the two aspects that most Christians aren't aware of. They're not aware of the, the fact that uh, the Masoretes family is a tradition that was carried along, the, the vowel pronunciations, and they're certainly not aware of when those little dots and dashes were actually added to the text. So they don't know those things. So they just so when someone like Biblical Unitarian comes along and says, hey, did you know that the original Hebrew says this, and the vowel pronunciation is this, and the vowel markings prove that it's this, and the Greek agrees with it, and blah, 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 and all of this took place 200 years before Jesus, blah, 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 which proves that, that the Messiah is a human, blah, blah, blah. Many Christians are just overwhelmed with all that techno babble and with information that they were never heard before, and they're like, wow. The biblical Unitarians must be right. So let's consider this in, in our discussion. I'm not throwing you guys under the bus, biblical Unitarian, but you need to tell the whole story. All right, let's close in prayer. Ah, I bless your name, and uh, I'm thankful for the text. Even if the scribes carried along and made their own uh, scribal emendations, nearly, uh, nearly like 140 different emendations, as far as I, I can ascertain. Um, they made changes to the text where perhaps you didn't authorize them and sanction those changes, but nevertheless, your word has been preserved. And I thank you for the preservation. I thank you for what the Masoretes did and the family of scribal families, uh, uh, scribal um, transmission that took place. I, I'm thankful for that, Lord. I'm thankful that Judaism preserved the text for Christianity down to this very day. I'm thankful for that. And, and um, uh, thankful that Judaism has had a zeal for God, even if, as Paul says, it's not according to knowledge. So help us, Lord, in our endeavor to better understand you. Help us to not judge one another just because um, some of us know certain things that others don't. That's no reason to judge one another. I don't judge my biblical Unitarian brothers and sisters. If they're naming the name of Lord of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, then they are my true brothers and sisters, and I accept them. I'm just trying to bring them to a better understanding of who you are and how you've revealed yourself in the Incarnation. Thank you also, Lord, for the eschatology study and all of the challenges that it brings to the table with trying to understand Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphanes and things like that. Continue to carry us along, Lord, in these last and evil days as we look forward to the soon approach of your son, Messiah Yeshua, back to planet Earth to claim his rightful place on the throne of his father, God, and to establish his kingdom here on Earth, ruling from Jerusalem, where the Torah will go forth. Thank you for those promises, which are surely to come to pass, because you have secured them in the pages of your word. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.